Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Okay, we're on, we're rolling. <laughs> <laughs> so hang on, can everyone, can, Chanel, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you <gasps> fine. Kirsten, you can hear me? Yeah, I can hear you guys. D- this is amazing. <laughs> How have we done this? We're all in like parts of the world and we're talking. Yeah, Kirsten, what magic you've done. To be honest, I, I wasn't very confident that we could get this across the line, but here we are. So this is good. I'll give you my first lockdown thing that I've thought of that's going to happen that's concerning me. I think... The, the pierced ear holes in my ears are going to grow over because I haven't been wearing earrings. I put makeup on today. Why? But I don't know. But to be honest, oh, I need to turn all the sounds off in oh my God. house. I <laughs> have felt like, because I'm still going to work every day, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because it's a pandemic, I shouldn't have to do my hair and makeup. Like, I just feel like I'm being cheated. So every day I feel like I do a shitter and shitter job and then the other day I wore track pants to work. That's amazing. Now there's like a, I can hear like a static yeah, crackle. Yeah, a little static. What's that? I, know. I don't know what that is. I think that's coming from you, Chanel. <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's aliens with you. Hold on. I hope our dead bodies community now? appreciate the The lengths work, we have gone to The lengths today. we're going to <laughs> We're all order. working from home. Well, we are having one or two little problems at the moment. It won't be too long before we're with tonight's episode of Dead Bodies. You should probably warn people that this episode is not going to be for the people that hate the interrupting because we're all in different <laughs> locations and yes. we can't see when someone else is going to talk. Yeah, it's gone. What did you have your hairdryer going or something? I don't know. I really wish Nicholas would stop microwaving things, mm. though. I just heard the microwave. <laughs> Well, we seem to have the problem corrected now, so let's return to the program. Is there a man available that could fix this for us? <laughs> no, we don't need a man. No. Are we on? Is that it? Are we doing it? I think we're doing it. We are. I think so. All right, so. so can we just start with a few good and bad lockdown things? So as I've mentioned, my, I'm worried that the holes in my ears will grow over. Here's a good one. Yes. My darling old golden retriever, Harvey Barker, who's still with us, who I hated leaving yeah. home alone. He just is loving it. Yeah. Everyone is here. Animals win. Yeah, dogs yeah. hit the jackpot. Oh, microwaving again. <laughs> what? <laughs> What's he? I need what to tell Nicholas to lunch? stop microwaving things. Hold on. Nico? Yeah. Can you stop microwaving things? Yeah. yeah. Don't make A lot of beeping. cold lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know. Can he come and tell us what he's having? He's um, having some kind of spinach and feta pastry, of course. Oh, nice. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's running the tap now. I can go no figures. I've really said that I need things to be quiet. <laughs> I kind of like it. That's well, a funny thing. He's permanently working from home. So he's like in our study every day and I'm still going to work, but things are different in TV world now. So we're all separated. We're paired up with cameramen. So it's not great if you don't like your cameraman because you have to work with them for the next six months. And we're just all working remotely. So I was filing on the side of Latrobe Street the other day, just in my car. And I realized I had to put my voice down and we're plugging microphones into our phones to do that. So I was on the side of the road, just talking to myself into a microphone and I realised I must have looked like a real freak and every time people walked past, I was putting the microphone down because <laughs> I felt embarrassed. Oh, you, you goose. And you're, used, you're used to standing up in front of people. Well, I've been in lockdown in my home, which I quite like because I love being home. Um, yeah, how and wonderful. And not having to go through peak hour traffic and stuff is, is great. Um, so I started off in one room and in the office at home, but then my son, he takes calls for an insurance company. He is around there. So I moved to the dining room and then my daughter is also, she's got the living room and thankfully Kieran's a tradie. So he's still allowed to work. So he's going out each day and we yell at him every single day. (laughs) Don't you bring anything home. You've sanitized yourself. We hose him down when he gets home. So it's unusual. But Kirsten, Kirsten's still been going into the office. Yeah, it's it's the same as you, Chanel. It's just different practices. Yeah. So we've got two main studios here at the station and we sort of alternate programs. All the announcers are working from home. 
Um, so there's just a handful of us that still have to come in, but we massively keep our distance. So it's just kind of, it's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chanel, I've got a question. What's happening with your wedding? Yeah. Well, nothing. So my wedding's not until October. So we're just going to wait and see. Okay. But it could be the next mass gathering. We may have to cut numbers. I don't know. I'm not fussed about it, though. Mm. Okay. I feel like it would All be right. almost a victory. Like... like it's kind of good. It's the perfect excuse to cut people. Yeah, yeah it's good. Totally. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a few people that... You guys will save some money. Go. It's great. I Don't know, you want a friend, just... Kirsten? <laughs> just wants but, opportunities yeah. to get rid of people. Just thinking of you your, to... your pocket, your money, your wallet. Pe- <laughs> people do real, like, cancer face at me. They're like, oh, your wedding. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm totally fine about it. What do you call it? Cancer face? Yeah, cancer face. That face people do where they droop their eyebrows down and like, oh, you're not, you're not well. It's like, fine, honestly. It's fine. <laughs> And people with cancer must hate it. Mm. All right, do you want a story? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go first? No, you go first. You could tell I was up on my toes, couldn't you? You were ready. Yeah, you were ready. Go, go, go. All right. Okay. We're going back to Tuesday, November the 30th, 1937 in Parramatta, which is about 24 k's west of Sydney in New South Wales. And a farmer was in his peach orchard. I just love that. Peach orchard. Peach orchard, yep. Mm. Uh, When he found the body of a woman. So it was about 50 metres from the entrance to the Lake Parramatta Reserve. Her legs were doubled up. She had a silk dress on and a slip as well. And they were gathered up around the waist. So her thighs and her hips were bare. And there was a chaff bag over her head and shoulders. A what? A chaff bag, you know, like um, a, a hessian sack that they would oh, have right. feed chaff for horses and things in. Sure. So a sack. So the newspapers published photographs of her clothing and because they were hoping that somebody would be able to identify her. There was a, a blue raincoat that sort of had that rubber lining on the inside of it, you know, that coating. Uh, yep. And it had big white spots on it. And there was a green sort of mottled bangle. So a woman rang police to say that she thought she knew who owned them um, and it was someone that she had seen about a fortnight earlier. So here's a part, Chanel, I'm I'm interested to hear your reaction on this bit. The police washed the clothing. Oh, perfect. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Excellent. (laughs) Before showing it to the woman. This is before DNA. Mm. Hold on, wait, because they didn't want it to have like blood on it? Yep. And they didn't want the woman to be offended by that. So there you are. Well, your heart's in um, the right place, isn't it? Like... Exactly. Can't, you know, <laughs> sweet policemen. And it would have been all men in those days. I don't think there are any female police officers. He would have been take, probably took it home and his wife probably put it through the, you know, the washer at home. So, uh, yeah. so the woman came to the police station. She was able to look at the clothing and she identified them as belonging to the woman she know, knew as Marguerite Bozen. So she said she didn't know a lot about Marguerite. She didn't talk much about her home life, but she did know that Marguerite's father had died and her mother had gone to live in Melbourne in Bamber Road, Caulfield. Unnecessary detail, but just for anyone in Melbourne, it's always fun to hear the name of some areas. That's Um, where my gym is on that road. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah, not that that means anything to anyone, but I know where that road is. Continue. But you don't live in that area, do you? No, but I go there because there's a PT that works there that makes me vomit. Oh, okay. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. I get a good workout. Anyway, continue. Right. Uh, So, Bozen was her maiden name. In fact, 19-year-old Marguerite was married. And so, her name was actually Marguerite O'Brien. But she had been living apart from her husband for some time. And she'd been working as a stenographer in various city offices and using her maiden name. So every one of her employees said she was a really efficient worker. They believed that her associates were of a good type. Uh, They took her body to the city morgue, but it was so decomposed that they couldn't say how she died. There were no bullet wounds, no broken bones. They thought that she might have been poisoned or suffocated. Um, the interesting detail, they said they ruled out their first theory that she had died during an illegal operation. And I it took me a minute to figure out what that is. Have you got it? An illegal... Oh. Like, was Did, she a prostitute? Well, I'm just thinking they probably mean abortion, don't they? 
Oh, mm. and a le- oh, I was thinking like operation, like as in mm. yeah, a sex worker operation. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like, a, no, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm guessing they mean abortion because and it would have been illegal yeah, at that time. Yeah, an actual there. operation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they ruled that out and the detectives had no idea why anyone would want to kill Marguerite. Everyone said she was bright and happy. She had several male admirers and her male friends told the cops that her company was much sought. Mm. Uh, oh. Isn't it interesting? They just have to rank her, her worthiness in the world, according to whether the men like then. her or not. <laughs> yeah, she exactly. was rather attractive. <laughs> but um, interestingly, everyone thought she was single. She hadn't told even her closest friends that she was married. And Marguerite had another oh. secret. She had a three-year-old child. So she and her own mother were paying someone to look after him. So the newspapers called her the woman who had led a butterfly existence. And there was a bit of a mystery to... So cryptic. What what does that mean? Well, I think they mean she flitted from here to there and wasn't using her real... Just playing the field. I don't know. She lived in a chrysalis, a cocoon... I don't know. You know they like to give them a a name. Uh, So there was a... There was a bit of a mystery about some of her belongings. She had a, um, there were some things missing. There was a black envelope handbag missing, a black lace-up shoe, a hat, an article of underclothing, and possibly a pair of gloves. So the police were able to fix the time of her murder as the night of Tuesday, November t- uh, 23. And they started piecing together her background. So they spoke to her husband. His name was Dudley O'Brien. Oh. What? What? So butterfly existence is like you can be many different things because, you know. You evolve. Uh, you evolve, yeah. You turn into a yeah. butterfly, all different lives. Yeah, that's what it means. Uh, and if she was using not her her real name, which was Margaret O'Brien, she was using her maiden name. She's flitting about and landing on different yeah. flowers and letting <laughs> them pollinate her. Or it's the other way around. <laughs> Sweet life. <laughs> All right, so cops are talking to Dudley O'Brien, who was the man she married. He was only 22. He was a pastry cook and a baker, and he confirmed what Marguerite had told others, that her father Hans had died, um, just as she told all her friends. Now, Dudley and Marguerite had married when he was 19, and she was just 17. And they were happy together for a while, but um, he had trouble keeping a job, and things got harder when the baby was born, so they separated. I'm very conscious of making swallowing noises because this is one of those microphones. Like I'm like Madonna in Vogue. It's like it's a headset one right <laughs> in my mouth. Um, so Marguerite went to Sydney. She got a job as a typist. She found somewhere to live in King's Cross. And I'll just read a little bit from the newspaper report at the time. She joined gaily the revelry and nightlife of Australia's most cosmopolitan centre. Her good looks, smart clothes and vivacious disposition attracted many men friends. She had scores of admirers and with her little flat in Bayswater Road and her complete independence, she appeared to be extremely happy. And apparently her catchphrase was, you're only young once and I want to know what your catchphrase is. For my life? I don't know. Do you have I want one? everyone to stop talking to me. That's my catchphrase. <laughs> See, I was expecting Because I think that murder. several times a day. That's what I think. I want everyone to stop talking to me. Oh, no. No, not going to. <laughs> going to keep going. Um, now, despite the fact that we're... Kirsten, do you have a catchphrase? No, I don't. I'm, I'm racking oh. my brain trying to think of one. I've never thought of this ever. Um, no, I've got, I got nothing. got donuts. Well, I do like the one, and I think it. W- I think Midnight Oil used it in a song. One better to die on your feet than live on your knees. Think about it, Kirsten. Good. Yours is "Can you hear me?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what's that echo? And I what feel does like that you ding? say that to people? Yep. Hey, can you hear me? Have I got you there? Can, Have I got you there, can, guys? Yeah. Guys, you there? <laughs> and we're rolling. Hey, we're on. We're on. <laughs> that, that's your catchphrase. <laughs> All right, so hers was, you're only young once. So she was very chirpy and happy. Now, despite the fact that they were separated, Dudley and Marguerite still saw each other reasonably often. They spent weekends together. And as late as Saturday, November 20, which is two days before the murder, three days actually, they were together. So Dudley wanted Marguerite. He called her... I want to, her name, he called Can her you Greta. you hear Nicholas yelling in the background? Yeah, did What's he, he swear? yelling for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
What's his problem? <laughs> I think he called someone a motherfucker. He's yelling, <laughs> <laughs> He's yelling at the dog. He's at the... Nicholas, stop. <laughs> Oh, he's coming to tell us what's happened. What was the lame excuse? I ate my dinner with her on the coffee table. Yeah. Got up to get a napkin. Yeah. Came around here at the table rally. Barry's on the table eating the fuck out of it. You know how he heated up that spinach and feta thing? Yes. He turned his back for one second and the dog, <laughs> the dog had climbed up on the coffee table and had taken it. <laughs> and was eating the fuck out of it. We heard that part. <laughs> and, we, and he was calling the dog a motherfucker. <laughs> okay, working Is everything from all right? Home. Uh, Bruce or Barry? Who was it? Which dog? It was Barry. It was Barry. Dog Barry. Sweet Barry. Um, oh now, Dudley called Marguerite oh, Greta, which I want to pronounce Greta, like little Greta Thunberg. Um, so Dudley <laughs> wanted Marguerite to come home and live with him in the town of Windsor where she grew up, but she didn't want to. So it turned out that Marguerite had been at work on the morning of the day she died. She left work in the afternoon and she was at her flat that night. And then she left to keep an appointment with a man. So she apparently didn't have any concerns about this man and she hadn't been threatened at any time in her life because she was very close with her sister and her mother and she wrote long letters to them and had never said anything about, oh, there's a man I'm concerned about or anything like that. So whoever she was going to meet was somebody she was comfortable going to meet. Now, we'll just mm. move now to the spot where her body was found was near a road which was running through the lake reserve known as Lover's Alley. And apparently at night, loads of cars would park there. And at the weekends, it was jammed with cars and you could imagine what was going on in them. So 30 yards. No social from where... distancing. Mm. <laughs> it's a different time. Yes. <laughs> it's a different time. So 30 yards from where her body was found the fence had been broken by a car. There was a hubcap off a car and there were some traces of blue paint on the fence. So one theory was that the murder had been committed down by the lake and then the killer had driven away with the body in the car. And then when they got to the top of the hill, they panicked when they saw the lights of Parramatta below, realised they had to dump the body, crashed into the fence at the brow of the hill and there were tyre tracks right there near the fence where the body was thrown over. And there was a car jack found nearby. So at Marguerite's funeral, the Truth newspaper turned up, and I don't know if either of you are old enough to remember the Truth newspaper, but it was absolutely the beginning of tabloid. It was the worst of the worst. They just had no um, no moral compass at all. So no truth whatsoever. <laughs> no. Well, that would be the truth, but well, here they are at the funeral asking questions of the bereaved. I mean, please. Oh so the paper reported that... Um, Marguerite had been buried in her father's grave. Her husband, uh, Dudley, was so grief-stricken, he had to be supported. They reported him as being shaken by paroxysms of grief. And Marguerite's mother put her arms around him and told him not to worry. And he spoke to the newspaper and he said, I'm absolutely heartbroken. I didn't even know she was missing until the police came to see me. And even now I can hardly believe that Grita is dead. You read of these terrible things in the paper, but you never imagine that you will be involved in them. And then when something terrible happens close to you, you are stunned. Side note, mm. isn't it interesting when, oh no, I don't want to, I can't I point it out, but I just thought it was interesting. He said, you are stunned when it happens close to you rather than him saying me happened close to me. me. I am stunned. Mm. Yeah. It's just this sort of step back a bit language. So the Truth newspaper asked him if he had a theory. Aren't they lovely? This is at the funeral they're doing this. Um, if he had a theory about who had killed Marguerite or why anyone would have wanted to kill her. And he said, no, I can't even guess. It's all a mystery to me. Everybody liked her. She had no enemies. Dudley had been one of the last people to see Marguerite alive. I've left out an important detail, which you might like. Guess what his middle name is? Don't guess because you never will. Lorraine. Oh. Sorry? I was expecting a bigger reaction than that. What do you mean, though? Why is it... I don't know. It's his middle name. Why is it Lorraine? He's got a girl's name for the middle. (laughs) Unfortunate. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Dudley Lorraine. 
O'Brien. So police formally interviewed him and he gave a statement on the 1st of December. In that statement, he said that the year after he married Marguerite, their baby was born and she went to Melbourne for a holiday with her mother, but she was away for seven or eight months. So he went down to Melbourne to see her and the mother-in-law told him that Marguerite had gone back to Sydney. So he went back to Sydney and he looked around and he found her and he asked her to come he back and around. <laughs> yeah. asked her to come and live with him but she wouldn't and nor would she tell him where she was living so he said they saw each other at intervals but ultimately they decided it would be better if they got a divorce um, he, he then said later we became friendly again I used to meet her every weekend in Sydney and at one stage he was sick he had an operation I think and she went to see him back at his home in their hometown and he said she even came to live with him for a couple of weeks at his mother's home in Windsor but she left again he said the last address I knew my wife was living at was in Darlinghurst I knew she had other boyfriends I met her at King's Cross on November 20 with a man I now know as John Paxton she introduced me to him as John and they went away together saying they were going to a dance. I was a bit annoyed when I saw them together. That was the last time I ever saw her. Now this bloke, John Paxton, had a slightly different recollection of that same meeting. So he said on the day that he and Marguerite bumped into Dudley, Marguerite introduced him as Jack, not using his real name of John. Oh what God, is that? This dog. <laughs> uh, so um, this is John Paxton talking. He said that Marguerite saw Dudley walking towards them, and she said, "Oh, oh, excuse me a moment. Here's." Uh, but she and she said Dudley's name, but she didn't say it very clearly, and John didn't quite catch it. And she said, uh, "He said she went over and spoke to the man for a couple of minutes." And then they continued walking together. And he said that the man, who we know is Dudley, called out, Grita! <laughs> Not in that <laughs> accent. That's just me. Um, and yeah, Paxton was... said, you may as well introduce me to your friend. And he says he shook hands with Dudley. And Dudley asked him for his other name. And Marguerite wouldn't tell him. And Dudley then asked John, did he have any objection to telling him his name? And John says, I said no. And then Marguerite invited Dudley to join them. But he said no. So this John Paxton said, as we turned to leave, um, Dudley had called out, I hope you have a good time. And I don't think he was saying it in a I, I bet it was, hope you have a good time, like nasty-like. <laughs> so so um, he said he understood everything was all over between she and her husband. I don't think he realised that was her husband at that time. Um, uh, he said that she didn't tell him that she saw Dudley from time to time. She hadn't told him that she had a child or that she had other men friends. He said that she went out sometimes with other men, but it was on business. And he also admitted to the police that he had been on intimate terms with Marguerite. So, let's just go back quickly to... Sorry, this is, is this too long? I just... Are you sick of hearing my voice? No, I've missed you. No. <laughs> yeah, same. It's, it's weird, this, but I, yeah, I understand. Okay, I've, I'm... I'm Cut that out, Kirsten. Why are you getting all so believing it in? <laughs> yeah, why are you so... Don't create more work for me. I don't know. <laughs> I've done enough all today. Right. Okay, leave out that little moment of insecurity. Okay, so let's go back to Dudley's first police statement. He said, I've never had any serious row with my wife. I've never threatened to take her life. I've never carried a gun. When he was asked to account for his movements on the day she died, he said he had gone to visit his son in the afternoon. He had tea alone. Then he sat in his car and had a smoke. Then he drove to Sydney and danced at the Ginger Jar, which must be a nightclub, Ooh. until midnight and arrived back home own. at about... Like, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Red flag. And he reckons... <laughs> well yeah, done, Kirsten. Yeah, 100%. Yep. I, uh, I did all these things and no one saw me and I didn't talk to anyone and I was on my own. <laughs> exactly. All clear, yep. Uh, but then, four days later, the cops brought Dudley back into the CIB on December the 5th and they showed him the car lifting jack that they'd found up near where the body was found. And um, they also said they had some questions for him about the chaff bags that had been found on her body. So at that point, Dudley Lorraine O'Brien uh, 
knew that he was in deep trouble. So he admitted that his first statement had been a pack of lies and he told the cops what had really happened. So on Saturday, November the 20th, Marguerite was supposed to go to his place in Windsor to see him, but she put him off. She said she had to get some teeth out, which I must remember as an excuse when I don't don't want to go out with people. Um, (laughs) I'm getting teeth out. Uh, So she said she wouldn't feel well. So he instead went to Sydney to get her to bring her back to Windsor. He said that was to save her bothering with trains. So when he got to King's Cross, that was when he saw her with the other man, with John Paxton. So two days later, Tuesday afternoon, he bought the two chaff bags. He reckoned he needed those to put over the radiator in his car. Bullshit. That night, he drove to Elizabeth Street. He saw Marguerite. He said they did some shopping. They drove away together, although she was not keen on going with me. He said they had tea. They sat for a while and smoked, which I didn't know that smoking was a pastime, but apparently it is. Uh, He suggested they go to a dance. Do you think it is? Yeah. Mm. Do you meet someone and say, let's have a smoke together? Yeah, I reckon people do that. I think people do that. I think they go around to each other's places for smokes, but I don't smoke, so I don't. Ah, interesting. Okay. Uh, he suggested they go to a dance, which I, if she really did have teeth out, that wouldn't be very nice. Uh, she said she she wasn't well. Apart from the fact she have no You're so teeth. self-conscious and innocent in this podcast. Like, why? What's happened to you? <laughs> You're just um, not knowing about people's smoking habits and... Well, I just didn't think that was a thing. Let's, uh, he's lift, listed it as one of the activities. We had some tea. We sat for a while and smoked. Okay, so he suggested they go to the dance. She said she wasn't well. And she said, according to him, that she would prefer a run in the car. So let's go for a drive. So they drove to Liverpool where they lay on the grass alongside the car. And he questioned her about whether she had been, in his words, carrying on with anyone else. So Marguerite admitted to Dudley that she had been intimate with John Paxton and another man by the name of James Wilson. James Wilson later told the court that uh, he and Marguerite had been writing letters to each other. And in one of them, he said he wanted to see her, that his eyes were entitled to a feast. Oh, what? I know, as in, I need to check you out, baby. So Dudley said they had an argument over John Paxton, who he'd seen her with. She teased me about, he thought his name was Jack at this point. She teased me about Jack and told me of others she had been out with. Dudley said that Marguerite told him, he is a better man than you will ever be. And he said this made him more wild than ever, uh, more wild than I've ever been in my life. And he said that he called John Paxton a numbskull. And she said, don't you say anything about him. I love him. And Dudley said, with those hurting remarks, I clean lost control of myself. I swung my hand round and said to her, shut up, don't talk like that. Now he then. This Their is all in his state. So not insulting. Mm, numbskull. Yeah, numbskull. exactly. You he you nincompoop. And just like <laughs> shut up, don't talk to her like that. I say way worse things than that. Mm, Nico yeah. said worse stuff to the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Barry has copped it. <laughs> so Dudley said he can't really remember what happened next, but the next thing I knew was that my wife was lying limp in my arms and I had my hands on her throat. I tried to rouse her, but it was too late. I then realized that I had killed her. And he said he sincerely loved his wife and he didn't mean to harm her at all. So he put her body in the car. He drove around in circles for about an hour and eventually decided to make his way to Parramatta, where he reckons he was told by someone there was a lonely spot. I don't know who tells you that kind of stuff. And he threw, well, his actual words were, I threw the body over a fence which I also thought was interesting language. What? It wasn't, I threw Marguerite or her, the body, he's calling her. How do you throw a body over a fence, though? Mm. I don't know. Maybe she was just little. 
So the next morning he noticed that a few of her things were still in the car, so he burnt them and he threw a bag in the bushes behind his cousin's shop. So after admitting everything to police, 22-year-old Dudley Lorraine O'Brien was charged with the murder of his... Ha, 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 you've got a girl's name. He was charged with the murder of his wife, 19-year-old Margaret O'Brien. He pleaded not guilty. Of course he did. Which is weird, isn't it, since he confessed to everything. So the murder trial took place on December 17. The jury retired for an hour and a half and returned its decision. We usually like to guess, don't we? Guilty. Not guilty. Dudley Lorraine O'Brien was acquitted. <gasps> Why? Yep. I, do you know what? I searched so hard for an explanation as to what the, the jury didn't explain themselves at any point. Um, he was just discharged from the court, also found not guilty of manslaughter. I don't know why. I think it's because she pushed him to it. She made him do it. What? Well, that's how they thought. Isn't it unbelievable? Yeah, true. What were you? Was it like it's the 1930s, isn't it? 1937. By then, yeah. I said that without double checking the date. Which no, is, it wow, was because I wrote it down. Because I feel time. like I, I'm taking notes. Yeah. Mm. 37. So I think it was in those days they honestly believed. This made me so angry when I was when I was putting it together. They believed that it wasn't the man's fault because she made him so angry by taunting him. Ugh. It's quite unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, I it... could push Nicholas to that point, though, I reckon. <laughs> Don't do it. I can see it sometimes in his eyes. I can tell. <laughs> but it's not a yeah. defence. I think it was most no, re- it's not. The, there was a case, oh, I want to say it was in the 90s, the Ramage, where um, they used that defence that, that the husband had been pushed so far by his wife that he couldn't help himself from doing it. But that's, I mean, Chanel, you're in court all the time. That's not a valid defence, is it? No. 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 That's not a reason to kill someone. No. Exactly. So, yeah, he obviously walked free. We've got Crackle again. Yeah, it just weirdly came back. Is it the microwave? Is Is he cooking things again? (laughs) No. A few moments later. Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Okay, so my story... Oh, Dee, you might know this. So it's the story of Jane Andrews. Anything? Not ringing a bell, no. Mm, okay. So Jane, uh, we're in England, by the way, and she's the daughter of a carpenter and her mother was a social worker. They were not super wealthy, they weren't poor, but then they went through some tough times. Her family had to move house because they needed to sell their house for money. And then it got really bad um, in her early teens to the point where her mum would tell her to search the house for spare change so they could buy things like groceries. Um, in her late or early-ish teens, she started acting out though, and she was sexually active from the age of 15. She had a number of different sexual partners. She became pregnant. She had an abortion and that abortion caused her a great deal of mental trauma. But she managed to get herself through school and she got a degree in fashion. But after she graduated, she could only find a job at Marks and Spencer as a sales assistant. It was a fairly low paying job and she was always on the hunt for something better. That's when she saw an ad in the paper under the heading personal dresser. So the ad said the person needed some help. Um, They were a busy mother and needed wardrobe help. So she applied and she didn't hear anything for six months. But when she did, she learnt the job was advertised on behalf of the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson. Can I just say something? I already love her. I think, hasn't she made the best of herself when she's obviously had some adversity and rough times and um, just hasn't given up? Yeah. Yeah. I love how innocent and just well you're thinking of the world. Yeah, today just... you're so pure. I don't know what it <laughs> is. Like so not pure. coming into the studio has turned you yes. <laughs> yeah, an you're so pure. Yeah, <laughs> just keep that thought for now. Okay. So uh, Jane was summoned to the palace for an interview with the Duchess. Is she going to uh, turn out to be a nasty cunt? Whoa! Well. <laughs> oh. I wasn't expecting that. You <laughs> set me up on this. Just... I was re- Well, okay. 
Just hold on. Okay. She did a great job of the interview, passed with flying colours, and she began working as the personal dresser for Fergie. Um, so she's gone from being a really troubled kid to having, you know, she's arrived. She's working in Buckingham Palace. Um, she only had 10 pounds in her pocket, and all of a sudden she's rubbing shoulders with all of the royal family. So this was, you know, a huge sea change for her. She's living this lavish lifestyle. She's eating amazing food. She bought herself a new car. And she's working as, because she's working as this personal dresser, she's all of a sudden in amazing clothes herself. So she'd been working for the royal family for less than a year when she met a much older man. Um, he was an executive for IBM. His name was Christopher Dunn Butler. My dogs are fighting on the floor. <laughs> what Can you hear them? <laughs> that is their collars. They're fighting on the yeah, floor. They're, they're, I could they're, hear they're... something. Yeah. I actually thought that you must be wearing a, a whole heap of like a um, dangly... bracelets or bangles. No, it's them <laughs> fighting on the floor. Um, they're leaving. Yeah, they've left. Okay, great. No, they're back. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> they're biting each other's legs. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to go put them away. Fuck, I'm so sorry. Hold on one second. No, 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 leave them. It's not, it's not a problem. I'm enjoying the cameo. I quite like it. Bruce, yeah. <laughs> well, Bruce is trying to hump Barry's back and Barry's not really oh. a fighter, but he's not into that. So No, okay. He just wants it to stop. Okay, <laughs> we'll continue. And if you love hear, is love, Chanel. Love is love. Love, Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Jane meets this IBM executive, Christopher Dunn Butler. He's much, much older than her, but they have this whirlwind romance and within, within months of meeting, they're engaged and they're married. But Jane has affairs and one of them is with a Greek, Greek, Greek shipping magnate called Dimitri Horn. Eventually, these affairs lead her to breaking up with her husband and she begins living in a house that the Duchess has set up for her. But when Christopher found out she was having affairs, he sued her. And while this was going on, the marriage of the Duchess to Prince Andrew was also beginning to fall apart. So Fergie and Jane are literally bonding over the fact that their marriages are falling apart and they're kind of traveling the world together. They keep working together the whole time. Um, as for the Greek rich guy, that comes to an end as well. So she has this really turbulent way of having relationships that always end really dramatically. And most of the time she's the dramatic one. So she's the, you can't break up with me. I'll kill myself. Oh, she's that, she, yeah, she's that kind of woman. So, um, She's still working for the royal family, but when the Greek, I'm just going to call him the Greek guy, when the Greek guy broke up with her, she flips it and she breaks into his house and she smashes all of his belongings. She finds a checkbook that belongs to his brother and she just writes herself out a check. Um, and all of this stuff gets back to Fergie, who fires her. Mm. Yeah, so she's worked for Fergie at this stage for more than 10 years. She's not given a reason as to why her employment has been the dog's back. Why her employment has been cut off? Um, they just have no respect for the working these dogs. They're both sitting at my feet now. One with well, they're smelling each other's private parts. But anyway, um, because they don't know that you're recording a podcast, they just know that Mummy's talking to them. Yeah, they, that, it's exactly right, and they do not care. And I feel like, remember that amazing viral video of the guy that's doing the um, <laughs> that interview and then his little girl, like, just strolls in, yes. like, wah, 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 in the background, and the wife is, like, climbing all over the floor to pull oh, the daughter back in. Oh, that's the best, yeah. Yeah, that's what Nicholas has done about five times while I've been talking. He's just grabbing the dogs and dragging <laughs> them by their legs back out. And where I'm doing this, this room doesn't have a door. It's just an open study so I can't even stop them but they're here nevertheless okay so the only reason she's given as to why she's been let go is that there's cost cutting measures however there was also rumors that she was stealing um, from Fergie 
so they had, there were strong rumours that she was stealing money from the palace and all this kind of built up and they just thought, we'll let her go. Um, so she goes to a London jeweller. She finds a job there, but it's nowhere near as much money as she was earning before. So she's running out of money. She's struggling to pay her bills and she's down on her luck and she's depressed. This is when her friends step in and they set her up on a date with a mutual um, friend of theirs. His name is Tom Kresman and he's a well-known businessman. I've got a little bit of audio here um, from the Crime Channel's documentary on this case. Tom was what I would call the boy with all the toys. He had the boat. He had the classic cars, he liked to go to nice places, good holidays, go out. So you can imagine what kind of guy he is, the boy with all the toys, you know, yeah. he's, he's that bachelor, handsome looking, and all of a sudden she's back. She's living her lavish lifestyle again. However, he is quite the bachelor and she's keen on locking him down and he's not really into that and he's spoiling her with lavish gifts and he's happy to do all those things. But he also wants things in return, such as bondage and role-playing, and she is not into that. So, on top of all the bondage and the role-playing and the lavish gifts, his family don't like her. They thought there was something off about her, and they made those feelings really clear. So there's a lot of tension, as you can imagine, but they stay together. Around a year into the relationship, though, it starts to get quite bitter. I actually don't know why they stayed together, but it got to the point where they were threatening to expose each other. She was saying she was going to tell all his business friends about his fetishes and all the weird shit he was into. He's saying he's going to go to the paper and dish all the dirt on all the things she did while she was working for the Royals. Nevertheless, they stay together, but Jane's friends are also becoming suspicious because she turns up one day um, to meet with friends and she has a broken wrist and she's saying things mm. like, no, we were dancing and I fell over. Um, but everyone is sus. Yeah. yeah. Um, she said, though, you know, he's apologised. I've accepted the apology. And they continue in this dangerously chaotic relationship. And every time he tries to leave her, she threatens to kill herself. And this happens again and again over that first kind of year but nevertheless, they end up on a family holiday with Tom's family in France. And at one point in the holiday, he says to her, let's go to Italy. And she's convinced in her head that they're going to go to Italy and he's going to ask her to marry him. He absolutely does not do that. Mm -hmm. She's furious. She's mad. And they fly back to England. Two days after they get back to England, Tom's mother is trying to find him and he's not answering his phone. Now, she isn't too worried, but another two days later, she calls and nothing. So she calls his workplace and they say he hasn't come into work. So she sends someone from his workplace to go and check on him. But Tom's mother doesn't hear back until later that night when police ring her. We've got some more audio here. Oh dear. Paula said... I have to tell you that your son is dead. It's a numbing sort of thing to have anyone tell you. And um, I just knew that was the kind of news I was going to get. So Tom is dead. They sent someone to the uh, apartment. It's like a bit of a townhouse, actually. And Tom is there dead on the floor. He's got a knife in his chest. Um, and Jane is missing. No one had seen her for a few days and no one could find her. Her car wasn't there either. So they're looking around the crime scene and Tom is in his pyjamas. So knowing that Tom's in his pyjamas, they're thinking, well, this has likely happened during the night. The knife was in his chest and he'd also been smacked across the head with a cricket bat. Well, they also if you're found... If, if you're yeah. going to stab someone, why the, the chest is all bones and things. Like, wouldn't you choose a part of the body that hasn't got bones in it? But it's a big target. Well, yeah. You can't miss. I suppose. But what if you get, the like, the breastbone, then your knife will go blunt. Thighs are also quite good for stabbing because there's that main artery. Oh, yeah. Mm. I, neck would be the thing if you want to wipe someone out. Oh, neck's so personal, isn't it? Yeah, yuck. It's a bit well, it's either so way. Yeah, all Look, yes. I, I'm just going to impersonally stab you to death in your chest. <laughs> I've listened to a podcast and they've said, 
you know, his neck is a bit personal, so I'll go chest. Um, so what they also found in the house was they found post-it notes and the post-it notes had said that Tom was cruel. And there was also another one that said, what have I done? Question mark. Not acceptable. Sorry. It's no, but sorry to interrupt again, but it's just Mm. like when, uh, who was it that broke up with Carrie over a post-it note in Sex and the City? It's not an acceptable way to communicate. It's not. It's worse than text message. Yeah. Yeah. Please continue. Sorry to interrupt again. Thank you. No worries. There's also a woman's dressing gown. It's covered in blood and it appears that whoever was the woman has showered before leaving the scene. No kind of, you know, Hmm. you don't get money for guessing who the woman is. Hmm. Police speak to Tom's family who were the last to see him when he was in France. They said he'd been extremely uncomfortable um, on the way back to the airport. That Jane was screaming at him the whole time telling him he had wasted years of her life and she was making calls in the car on the way to the airport and bad-mouthing him while he was kind of sitting next to her. They also speak to other friends and they find out not only did Tom not propose to her in Italy, he took her there to make it clear that he was never going to marry her. Not acceptable. You can't take someone to Italy and just yes. say, I've brought you here to tell you I'm never going to marry you. Yeah. I'm Don't not making excuses for what she's done, but it's never going to go down well. Anyway, so they find out that um, within 24 hours of arriving home, Tom had actually called police to report her, to report Jane for domestic violence. But the call taker had convinced him that intervention wasn't necessary and that the police didn't need to come down. And his family are furious about this because they're saying that Tom wasn't taken seriously because he was a male reporting a female for domestic violence. Mm. So now all of a sudden, this is a few days on, Jane resurfaces. After being missing, she all of a sudden starts texting her friends and she's writing things or she's sending texts like, where is Tom? Why hasn't Tommy called me? What's happened to Tom? (sighs) Yeah. So she's acting like she has no idea that Tom is dead. Right. Okay. She's trying to cover her tracks. So post-it notes, what have I done? A few days later, where Cheeky is text. Tommy? Yeah. yeah, what's going on? I know what I'll do. I'll just start texting everyone, acting like I don't know Tom's dead. So her friends who did have some kind of, they maybe thought that something, she was a bit innocent, you know, they're her friends. They're thinking that maybe she's been abducted. They go to police when they start getting these texts and cops start tracking her phone. So mm. they... Yeah, so they trace her phone signal and they work out that she's somewhere in Cornwall and one of her friends manages to get her on the phone and during the call, the police are tracking it but she's told her friend on that phone call that she's driving. So even though they're tracking her, she's on the move, it's very difficult, they don't find her. But she does tell her friend that people were after Tom and he was being blackmailed. Um, At this point, police are 100% convinced she's the killer. So every airport, every port of any kind receives a photo of her to make sure that she doesn't try to do a runner. They know that she's mentally unstable and she's been missing for about four to five days now. So they give her friend a second phone and they tell the friend whenever Jane calls her, she has to use the second phone to call police. And they eventually, she does call and they track her this way and they find her on the side of a highway under a blanket in her car. We've got audio again here. She wasn't very lively. She'd been sleeping. She complained of being very cold. Jane told the officers she'd overdosed on paracetamol. She was rushed to the nearest hospital. Paracetamol can cause damage to your liver and kidneys. The hospital knew what she'd taken, so they were able to counteract that. Paracetamol? What? It's like going, oh, I'm going to die because I've got plaque on my head. Oh, Mozzie bit me. So, (laughs) like, it's not a thing. I'm not suggesting you do it. But, yeah, if you really meant it, that's just display, isn't it? Yeah, well, she goes to hospital. It takes a few hours, but she stabilises. 
they search her car, they find nothing really that tells them anything about the murder in the vehicle. But on the 25th of December 2000, she's released from hospital and police begin to interview her. She tells police that someone broke in and attacked Tom because he owed people money and he hadn't paid. Oh, I'm going God. to reference Look, the post-it I notes hate again her. here. Mm. I hate her. Look, I, because she's humiliated me. I, I backed her at the beginning, said she was doing well, and now I feel like an idiot, and so I hate yeah. her. Right. Yeah, good. We're back. You're back to your regular yeah. self. Well, good. So she, eventually, under some intense questioning, she admits that she did kill Tom, but she says it was self-defense. She says they'd been fighting since they left France. She said he was violent and he um, she had to leave to calm down. She said when she came back, she went to bed and she put the knife and the cricket bat next to her bed for protection. She said he came into the room and attacked her and raped her, but she said she never went to police because she was embarrassed about this rape. And then she says later on he attacks her again, and that is when she defends herself and she kills him. She said she struck him over the head with the cricket bat and then she stabbed him. So she's charged with murder. She went to trial and in the trial she gave evidence and she painted this picture of Tom being a terrible man. Um, And the trial was just a circus, obviously like a media circus because, you know, she's worked with Fergie. There's this royal palace connection and prosecutors say that their version of events is that it's likely Tom was asleep when he was struck with the cricket bat. And then he was stabbed. We've got a little bit um, from Tom's mum here again, a little bit of audio. The sadness to me was when I learned Tommy had actually tried to pull the knife out and she'd just left him there to die, you know, which is just awful. So they could tell from the rigor mortis that his hands were around the knife that was in his chest and they could tell by that that he had tried to pull it out and he couldn't. So she gave evidence and said that she was abused as a child and that is what contributed to her lashing out. The jury found her. Anyone want to guess? Guilty. Uh, guilty? Yeah, guilty. And she Good. was sentenced to life behind bars. Yes. But. What but? No but. In 2003, she tried to commit suicide behind bars after her appeal bid was rejected So in 2006, a judge agreed she could be freed after just 12 years behind bars. What? But. What but now? In 2012, she tried to escape from prison. How? Not only did she try, she actually was successful. What? What did she do? Grow a long plait and drop it out the window and climb out (laughs) down it? So I think she was in like one of those... um, low security because she tried to commit suicide even though she'd killed someone she was in like one of those prison farms rather than an actual high security prison and low security is is no security that's not good enough yeah so she escaped they found her and because she escaped they cancelled her early parole and she is still behind bars today wowie yeah god she just keeps stuffing it up. Like, I don't understand. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, she had this great job. She went from rags to riches, had it yep. made. If you just stuck to it, like, go work for Fergie. You've got the great clothes. You've yep. got a good car. You know, fancy car, Traveling fancy the world. house. Oh, mate, you've got it made. And then she stuffs that up and then she goes to prison yep. and then stuffs that up when she gets, you know, parole on whatever she got. You just made a mess of it. Yeah. Just stop. Just stop. She, but maybe she had this deep-seated hatred of people who had hatred with a D, um, of people who have more than her, like of rich people, which she probably had. But then she ended up being a rejection thing. She hated being rejected. Rejection, but also, yeah, I know she ended up being rich, but she probably wanted more, more, more. Like it it would be just this always thing that I don't belong, I'm not worthy, I want what you've got. I don't know, I'm just making it up actually at this point. That's don't defend her. Rubbish. She made you look like a rightful. That's <laughs> right, she did. And I'm going to have it. <laughs> um, now I've got quite an important feedback to do. If you will indulge me, yes, please. I'm just going to enlarge the text on my laptop so that I don't need to put my glasses on. What size so are you going to? I've gone to 18. <laughs> That's massive. Yeah. Uh, It is huge. Giant letters. Now, um, so 
Oh my god. Everyone all right in my house, Chanel? Bruce has lost on. it. Oh no, the neighbour's backing his car out oh. of the driveway and whenever Is that he the does weird this neighbour or a different one? No, these are normal neighbours. Okay. But whenever he does this, is he reversing out what's happening? The Bruce really gets on guard about it. <laughs> this is every welcome to my home, everyone. This is what That's happens lovely. every time. <laughs> Harvey's just yeah. fast asleep. Kieran's driven off in the truck. I don't know where he's gone. Is he oh gone? God. Oh no, he's home again. Man of mystery, my husband. He's just always, never know, quite know where he is. Could be in the shed, could be in the veggie garden, could be sitting on his laptop. All right, here we go. Um, so do you remember in episode 81, I told the story of Jessica Pierce, who was a young girl in the 70s, car accident, and they couldn't quite work out who she was. And it was 30 years yes. later that they established, yeah, that yes. she was in fact Ursula Barwick. So... After the episode aired, we had a message on Facebook, which was then followed up with an email by a woman named Melissa, and I'm going to mis mispronounce it. Melissa, I do apologise. I think it's Puglio. Um, uh, anyway, Melissa is the cousin of Ursula. And at right. first, and I do understand this, I, uh, um, and I don't want to misrepresent her, but she was she was taken aback about hearing yeah. a family member spoken of on a podcast, and she felt that the way that I spoke about her was a bit flippant, which, as you know, and as people who listen know, we certainly don't ever mean to do that. And I explained to her that, um, you know, I apologised. I didn't certainly mean to be flippant about um, a family member who died, but also um, I explained to her that. I had told the story in wanting to recognise the efforts of the police mm. that they had, after all those years, 30 years, finally managed to find out who Ursula actually was and mm. give some closure to the family. So, And can I just um, say as well, we really panicked when we got that email, like we freaked out because we yeah, were because so I don't, I don't want to upset anyone. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly right. And I think like there were texts between all three of us and we were going back and listening to it and we were just, that is the last thing we ever want to do. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to make Melissa sound like a complainer because she wasn't. I, I really, it was, it's a very valid point she makes. It's something that we need to keep in our minds that we are talking about people who've died and mm. everyone has a family somewhere. So uh, respect for that. And she certainly wasn't, um, she was really lovely to deal with, I have to say. So I asked her to email us and she has done so. So I'm just going to share Melissa's email with her permission um, and she can put her point of view in, these are her words. So she says, um, Dear Daddy, I've taken some time to reflect on this and I do appreciate what you were trying to do. But we can't talk about the incredible work of King's Cross detectives in isolation without acknowledging that until they came along in 2014, the police had completely failed Ursula. The simple fact is that there are only two police heroes in this story, Detective Sergeant Kurt Hayward and Sergeant Amy Scott and their team from Strike Force Hemingway. Their investigation revealed historical failings in the New South Wales Police going back three decades and Ursula's case was a catalyst for the exposure of the failings of the New South Wales Missing Persons Unit, which was shut down last year and replaced by an investigative unit. Adam Marsh did match up Ursula's file with Jessica Pearce while he was working with the New South Wales Missing Persons Unit, but was told by his superiors that no resources were available for Ursula's case, so he put the file away and it sat gathering cobwebs for another few years while her family agonised over what might have happened to her. Myself, Kurt, Amy, the Australian Federal Police, National Missing Persons Coordination Centre, worked closely with the New South Wales Missing Persons Unit from 2014 in our quest to highlight Ursula's case and find her, but this file still sat unforgotten. Ursula was on television, radio, in magazines, on billboards, buses, taxis, at airports, train stations, online media around the world, and still the file sat unforgotten. I published a crime novel a year for five Five years and included an author's update at the end of each book to raise awareness around her case. This was my way of finding that someone somewhere who knew something, yet this file still fat unforgotten. An inquest in May, so that's still to come this year, will reveal the full extent of the failure by, and these are, I want to be clear, Melissa's words and not, and not ours, um, she says, will reveal 
reveal the full extent of the failure by New South Wales Police and the Missing Persons Unit, which was set up to be dedicated to families like ours. This is not unique to Ursula. There are many, many long-term missing persons cases in Australia who've been treated this way, families who think that their cases are being actively looked at when they aren't. The impact of ambiguous loss on families is debilitating. Things need to change. Thank you for highlighting the amazing police work by King's Cross detectives. I know how incredibly lucky we were when they were assigned to how lucky we were, I beg your pardon, when we were they were assigned to Ursula's case. They've set an example for others to follow. By continuing to share Ursula's story and focusing focusing on what we have learned, we can achieve positive change and increase the solve rate for the estimated two thousand six hundred long term missing persons case in Australia. If you're interested in knowing more about Ursula, she featured on Australian Story in November 2019. My much-loved cousin who will never be forgotten, kindest Melissa. So there we are. Um, that hopefully gives her side of the story. And, um, you know, we ended up, it was lovely, and she, and she actually signed off after a couple of other messages by saying, uh, take care, stay safe, and I wonder what Ursula would make of this world gone mad because it's quite a different world, isn't it, And mm. since since she left it. So there we are. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.